Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. It's good to see everybody. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's where we've been. We are going to continue to study on the topic of charity. And, uh, you know, this is part of a a sub-series in our 1 Corinthians series that deals with the idea of spiritual gifts. And, And so... Uh, we are going to continue in that vein, but Paul takes a, a bit of a hiatus. He, he kind of reroutes us for a minute here in chapter 13 because he wants to address something that's very, very important, and that's this, that if you want to be used by God, if you want to be missional, if you want to be kingdom-minded, if you want to apply yourself to the work of the ministry, if you want to, to be a part of seeing lives transformed for the gospel's sake, you will never be able to do that absent charity. If it's, if, if it's not Christ's love in you, then those spiritual gifts that God has bestowed upon you, as wonderful as they are, as unique as you are, as fitly joined as you are, as how special God's plan is for your life specifically, it's impossible to be all the things he's asked you to be if you're not living in the love of Christ. This is absolutely critical for us to get, especially in a world that has no idea what love is. In our society, we've made love into an emotion or a feeling, something subjective and unmeasurable. It can't be be weighed. It can't be measured. We're so confused about what love is. We talked about this quite in depth last time we were together. We've made love so abstract and ambiguous that most people don't even know how to recognize it when they see it. Now today we're going to talk about how to recognize true love. What does it look like? What does it look like lived out? What does it look like in terms of lifestyle and behavior? How do we measure charity in our relationships that we have with one another? If I have a charitable love, one that's genuine and not fake, How will that manifest itself in my words and in my actions? And so here's our key question for today's service. What does charitable, Christ-like love look like? What does charitable, and by charitable we mean Christ-like, we mean divine, we mean sacrificial, right? Willing willing to give up my own resources, my own time, my, my own energy For the sake of others. That's charitable love. What does it look like manifest? And so I'm excited about the series that we're going on here. Um, It's going to take us a little bit of time, but I think it's worth us talking about if we're going to be the ministry that God has made us to be. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for Alvaro and the blessing that he was to this this congregation last week, Lord, I, I pray your blessing on him, that you continue to use him and, and his study of your word to, to bless other people, to challenge us, and to provoke us. God, I ask that you be with us in this time now, and, and the honest truth is I, I just want to confess before you, and, and I, I pray that everyone is, is uh, in, in agreement with this prayer, that, Lord, we cannot, we cannot be loving without your love. And so until we can tap into what it means to to receive your love and to love you in return, we really don't have anything to offer one another. And so, God, I pray that in the midst of this series that we would come to realize just how precious an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ is and how wonderful you've been to us and, and, and how deserved you are of our love in return. And you you gave us you know, the greatest, the greatest example, the, the, the height of all love, of all charitable love came in laying down your life, putting your, 
your will aside to care for us and to redeem us. And so we thank you for the cross. And Lord, we pray that we would love the way that you've loved us, that we love each other in just that way. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there will be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And we'll stop there. We have uh, 15, 15 different characteristics here li- listed for us. Characteristics of charitable love. And so among these characteristics, we are going to discover some very, very important truths. And I think we need to take time here for some very critical reasons, very, very important reasons. And the first one is this, okay? And if you guys haven't yet gotten used to taking notes now, yet in the class, I want to highly recommend that you start taking notes. Um, also, this PowerPoint is available to you online. And so if you want to follow along with the PDF, you can do that. But, but let's make a habit of taking notes because as we know, as we know, uh, when we take notes, we process twice, right? And so we want to make sure that we're really gathering what God has for us. Now, the very first reason why this is so important is that studying these characteristics is first and foremost an opportunity for us to personally assess how we perceive and engage other people. And particularly those people that are in the household of faith. And so what we're doing here is we are learning whether or not we are loving people properly. We're looking at what God's word says, we're looking at our life, and we're asking ourselves, do I actually love people the right way? So obviously that's the the very most important thing that we can do is consider, consider what we are supposed to learn personally from God's word. This is, take this as a charity assessment, right? A charity assessment. And this week and, and next week um, will prove to us whether or not we're actually good friends and good ministers. The second thing is this. This knowledge that we're going to get from this chapter, there are so many waters up here. What do you guys think I am, a camel? I mean, I'm not, you guys think I'm dehydrated? Am I looking sickly up here? This is so much water. (sighs) Thank you, yeah. So the second thing is this. This knowledge should assist you in your search for a husband or a wife. And I think that's particularly important for a class like this one. What we're going to look at here is important to figuring out what we should be looking for in a spouse. Now, I've, I've sa- I said this from time to time, and I'll say it again. It's worth repeating, is that, is that men and women of God can and do marry the wrong person. They, they, they can marry the wrong person. Now, here's the deal with that. I hate to break the news to you. Once you've married them, they're not the wrong person anymore. They're your person. Yeah? They're not the wrong person anymore. They're your person. They belong to you. And you've got, you've got, you know, 70 good years to figure that thing out. <laughs> but if we're not looking for the right thing, we can, we can find the wrong person. And I've seen it. I've seen it in ministry over the years. I've seen godly men, godly women who are looking for a spouse and they find someone that they're attracted to physically, and they want so desperately for it to work that they only can see that person in a good light, you know? And they're not necessarily very critical, and they're not looking in terms of proving out faithfulness, commitment to discipleship, 
commitment to God's word, faithfulness in ministry, and they're not looking for characteristics of charitable love. And, they're, and they're, there's, they're, there'll be argumentation and difficulty and frustration in the relationship, and they're willing to look past those things because they want to be married. And that's how you end up living a really difficult life. We need to be looking for charity in our spouse. So let's begin here by breaking down the, the first characteristic. Are we ready? We're going to cover five today, five of the 15. Take good notes. Be ready. Here we go. Okay, the first one is this, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Charity suffereth long. Suffereth long, or is long-suffering. Long-suffering is our word. Love is long-suffering. So what is long-suffering? The word suffereth long, or long-suffering, means to be patient. It means to be patient. This is a person who is temperate in their emotions, and listen to me, has the ability to suspend reaction in order to endure in hope. They're they're willing to suspend reaction in order to endure with hope. A person who is long-suffering has the ability to remain full of hope and joy while undergoing varying degrees of pain, ridicule, and trial. We haven't even really started yet. And I hope you're beginning to realize that in many ways we do do not stack up here. I mean, how do you respond when things are tough? How, How do you respond when things aren't going your way? How do you respond when people treat you poorly? I mean, very few of us are long suffering. You know who is long suffering? Jesus is long-suffering. God is long-suffering. God is, is long-suffering. And, and consider, consider God's patient toward, patience towards us. We sin, and then we sin, and 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 we sin. And he's watching, and he's observing. And we offend his holy name, and yet he continues to work with us. He continues to apply his grace to our lives, despite the fact that we're... We're pretty terrible to him. Consider Genesis chapter 6. Okay? Genesis chapter 6. God put up with a wicked world for a thousand years. I mean, he's looking at his very creation, and they are rebelling in every way imaginable. The creation that he loves so much has treated him poorly for over a thousand years before his judgment comes. Genesis 6, 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Think about how grievous that would be. How utterly terrible it would be to know that your own creation has turned its back on you and to put up with that for a thousand years. And the Lord said, verse 7, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now, I, I think it's only fair for us to consider the fact that if he did make us, that he has every right to be judicious with us. As his creation, he has the right to judge us. We we belong to him. And when we assert our rebellion or we assert violence against his holy name, it's only fair that he might say to himself, you know what, this ain't going as planned. Okay, let's hit the reset button. Now, I mean... We won't, we won't get it. This is philosophical, but, but, and we won't go down this road, but there is no perfect love without perfect justice. Amen. We have to remember that. And so even as the world deserved God's wrath, even though justice was required, God's love demanded that he wait while one man spent 120 years building a boat. For love's sake, he waited. For love's sake, he waited. 
1 Peter 3.20 says this. When once the long-suffering, there's our word, there's our key word. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. He waited. He waited patiently. In the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. The whole earth is rebelling against God, and he's willing to wait 120 years while Noah builds an ark for him and eight people. His love is patient towards us. Even today, the only thing suspending the wrath of God is his long-suffering towards those he loves. And even in his foreknowledge, he serves in hope to pursue the one sheep. The, the, the one sheep that has gone astray among the other 99. That is long-suffering. That is, that is a love that is patience. And this is our example. So key point. Long-suffering creates space in relationships necessary for grace to be inserted. Long-suffering is an act of love. It's an act of charitable love that is intended to create space within our relationships for grace to be applied and inserted. So, so let's just give an example here for a second. It's very easy for us to grow frustrated and disappointed with one another. In our relationships with coworkers, with family members, with people here at church, it's very easy when people treat us wrong or things are difficult for us to, uh, us to stand up for ourselves, to defend ourselves. But if we were willing to simply create space with patience, if we were willing just to suffer long, to suffer for a season, to go through the pain, how might God use that for us to apply grace to a life that is rebellious against God? How, how might God use that relationship and that long suffering to work his perfect way? But so few of us, we shut the door on grace because we, we refuse to be patient with one another. We close down those opportunities. We make it impossible for us to do the work of God. We make it impossible for us to do true ministry with one another because we're not willing to be patient with each other. We grow frustrated. We have to learn to be long-suffering, and we should be long-suffering. We should, we should be long-suffering. This is the kind of person that God wants us to be, dispensing grace wherever we go. But it's not always easy. People treat us poorly. That's just a fact of life. And Midtown Baptist Temple, I, I want to break the news to you, Midtown Baptist Temple is not a haven from hurt. This is not a special and like supernaturally like Jesus bubble where once you get inside there, no one's ever going to hurt you. That's not how it works. Wherever people are, hurt follows. But here's the point. That's not the point. The point is this, is that just as God has bestowed spiritual gifts on you and given you the ability to function in light of his unique identity for you, just as he's bestowed that upon you, He's bestowed the ability for you to persist in love. Even when no one else seems to be loving you back. Even when no one else seems to be loving you the way you think you're loving them. Key point. Charity grants us the capacity to take injury without offense or revenge. Charity grants us the capacity to take injury without being offended and without feeling the need 
to avenge ourselves. Set things straight. I'm going to set things straight. You know how quickly we're offended? We live in a world that is quick to offense. We get offended about everything. We, we, we have very, very thin skin as a society. And just like we've been talking about from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, we've talked about how the world and society is imposing itself culturally upon the church. And we are susceptible and prone to those same kinds of cultural elements and weaknesses. We live in a world where we have very thin skin. And we need to learn how to not be so offended with one another. We gotta learn how to let go of stuff. And in a world world where we think that we should be able to get what we want at the drop of a dime, let me break it to you. It might take you months and years to see the reconciliation in, in relationships that you want but it doesn't change the fact that your responsibility is to suffer long in love. To love people who don't love you. Is that, is that not what Christ experienced on the cross? As they, as they spat upon him? As they mocked him? As they cursed his name? Is that not what he went through? And yet he persisted to the cross? That he continued on? Even though at any moment he could have simply called a legion of angels just to wipe out the entire earth because of how they were treating him, he continued on to the cross and he took it. And and may I say, he took it like a man. He took it. Because he loved you more than he loved himself. This is what drives long-suffering in us. Ephesians 4.1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Forbearing means to, despite the burden, turn away as though it's not there. Forbear it. Put up with it. Be okay with it. To let it go. To turn the other cheek. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now remember that what we are ultimately saying is that a person who is not long-suffering is a person who, is, who has made their gifting in Christ useless. So how do we attain this quality of charity? Where does long-suffering come from? Where is it developed at? Well, we learn this in James chapter 1. It says this in verse 3, Knowing this, that, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So faith produces patience. Faith produces patience. In other words, listen closely here. In other words, a simple belief that God is bigger than my circumstances will relieve me of the burden of my frustrations and disappointments. Just a simple belief that God is bigger than my circumstances will relieve me of the burden of my frustrations and disappointments. If, if faith, if the definition of faith, if we define faith this way, if faith is understanding God as being reliably righteous, then it makes sense that faith would produce patience in moments of relational hardship. We don't need relationships to be fair. I mean, they won't be. They won't be. We don't need relationships to be fair. We don't need relationships to always be mutually loving. We need relationships informed by faith, which will make us perfect 
and entire, wanting nothing. And you know what that means when it says that? Wanting nothing, perfect, entire, wanting nothing. It means mature and transcending circumstances. I don't want anything that I don't already have in Jesus. I don't need or want to make this relationship right because as far as I'm concerned, it's as right as it needs to be. I love that person despite the fact that they don't love me in return. I serve that person despite the fact that they don't want to serve me back. I care for these people and I lay my life down despite the fact that they might not return that sentiment. I am wanting nothing that I don't already have in Jesus. And we struggle with long-suffering. It's a big one. But we've got to get that right, and we've got to have faith in Christ to get there. Two, kindness. Kindness. The passage says, and is kind. So what is kindness? Right? If charity is kind, we should know. We should try to understand what does it mean to be kind. I think for a lot of us, when we think of kindness, we think of being nice. Right? Being nice, that's kind. But I don't think we have a true definition of what kindness is. The definition of kindness is this. Kindness is taking delight in the happiness and well-being of others. That's what kindness is. To be kind is to express a gentle generosity towards other people. Taking joy in seeing others' desires met. That's what kindness is. And in Scripture, we often see mercy and kindness with one another. So, so what is, real quick, what is mercy? Do we know what mercy is? Okay. Withholding of the justice that's deserved. Withholding justice that's deserved. Mer- mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve or I'm not going to enact what you deserve. I'm going to withhold wrath. I'm going to withhold justice because I love you. And we see mercy next to kindness, which is generosity, gentle generosity, which reminds us of grace. Generosity is is like grace, is like the grace of Christ bestowed upon us, giving us what we don't deserve. So we often see mercy and kindness together. Psalm 119, 76 says this, Let I pray thee, Thy merciful kindness be for my comfort according to thy word unto thy servant. It's a prayer to the Lord asking for merciful kindness. So what does this imply? It implies that rather than giving us what we deserve, God sheds his goodness upon us. He extends a generous and gracious hand. And God is kind. God is kind. The entire Bible is a testimony of God's kindness towards us. Psalm 117.2 says this, For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Now you can't sing, there's only one way to read that verse now, and that's to sing it. Right? Can't help that. But it's so true, is it not? His merciful kindness is great toward us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. God is kind, so kind that he was willing to offer his son a sacrifice for our sake. A generous gift. We will, listen to me, we will never deserve. You didn't deserve it then and you don't deserve it now. You will never have deserved that gift that he bestowed upon you. Ephesians 2, 4 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you, did you or do you deserve that? An eternal place in the throne room of God? A mansion in heaven? perfect peace and unity with God forever? You don't deserve that. That in the age to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace 
in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God is kind, and we should be kind too. The reason that many of us are unfruitful, listen to me, the reason that many of us are unfruitful in our workplace or in our classroom or with our family is because we have never learned to be kind. It's, it's amazing to me how many people are saved and indwelt with the spirit of Jesus, of, of God, and, and yet are absolute jerks all the time. Believers are mean, petty, difficult. When zeal and knowledge should be producing truth and love in us, we allow them to make us pious, judgmental, overly assertive, and brash. And that's wrong. Key point. God's mercy toward us should produce kindness in us, not entitlement. Not entitlement. Being saved and knowing a thing or two does not entitle you to act like a jerk. In fact, what it is, it's an invitation for you to die. I know, um, I know a lot of us don't understand how to deal with interpersonal conflict. We struggle with it. And a lot of us don't know how to engage with people who treat us bad. But faith and virtue demands that we treat even our enemy with kindness. Check this out. Romans 12, 20. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Well, that sounds mean. No, no, no. <laughs> what this passage is saying is that when even the people that treat you the worst, when you treat them kindly, what it does is it exposes them for who they really are. It reveals to them, perhaps even in the pain of their own heart, that they've, that in contrast to you, that they've been wicked. That's what that's saying. You will, listen to me, you will never convince those who oppose you with a cogent argumentation. You're not, you're not gonna convince people that way. You are not going to win the loss because you argued the best. Despite the fact that many believers of our ilk act that way. And it drives me insane. To hold the truth so closely to your mind and heart. And yet consistently act like an arrogant jerk. It's not right. You will never overcome your enemy with retribution and revenge. It'll never happen. You will never win that way. See, what we need to do is we need to let the evidence of God and his righteousness be realized by your kindness towards others. Your kindness legitimizes what you believe. Rather than striving to win or convince, learn to observe the needs of other people around you and respond by serving them at the point of their need. That's what we need to do. Be observant. Look around. Where is the need? Meet that need. And legitimize the words that you speak. We need to learn to be kind. Ephesians 4.32, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted. How many of you have tender hearts? Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Third, charity envieth not. So charity is without envy. What is envy? What is envy? Envy is wanting something that belongs to another person. It's wanting something that belongs to another person. An envious person, listen, an envious person sees the whole world in terms of their own felt needs and desires. Their worldview, their understanding of their job, their understanding of their family members, their understanding of church, their understanding of school, their understanding of everything they do revolves around the concept that people need to be meeting their needs all the time. 
And in this way, it's the opposite of kindness. <laughs> kindness says, I'm going to go out of my way to meet the needs of other people because I want to see people have joy. But envy says, everyone else should be serving my needs all the time because I want to have the joy. <laughs> I want to be happy. Envy or jealousy comes from insecurity and self-centeredness. That's where it comes from. A person who is jealous has convinced themselves that they cannot be fulfilled in life unless their particular expectations, whether they're material or immaterial, are met. And envy, listen, envy will wreak havoc on your soul. It will, it will decimate you from the inside out because big surprise, your expectations aren't always gonna get met. And when they don't, you've set yourself up for serious internal pain. Envy will wreak havoc on your soul. Here's the next key point. Envy fosters discontentment and complaint in life and ministry. You know, I've been talking with our leadership a lot recently about complaint. And I think, I think that there is a systemic problem in our world, but also in our ministry, with people complaining about difficulty. We just get, we just get prone to it. We get, we get discontent real easy. We're not very grateful people, and we find ourselves, when things are hard, we talk about it. We like to talk about how things are hard all the time. Why? I, I, I think it has to do with the fact that we want people to pat us on the back and affirm our felt needs. That's what we want. We're, we're looking for some form of therapeutic rest or comfort in the people that we engage with. And it's a really unhealthy way of looking at the world. It's not good. And when we, when we are envious, when we want things that don't belong to us, when we look across the room and we say, well, so-and-so has it so good. Look at how they have it. I want it that way. I wish I had it that way. Oh, you know naturally over time, it's only going to produce in you discontentment and complaint. That's the end of that thing. It's corrosive. It'll destroy you from the inside out. Now, God does not per permit envy. He doesn't put up with it. Check this out. He hates it, in fact. Job 5.2 says this, For wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. Envy, envy is an immature attribute. Proverbs 14.30 says this, A sound heart is the life of the flesh but envy the rottenness of the bones. It's terrible. The rottenness of the bones? It's, it's like cancer. It's like, how it's like your body betraying itself. Envy will rotten you from the inside out, from your heart. Your heart will die at the hands of envy. We have to deal with it. We should not be envious people. So let's consider why are people prone to envy? Why are people prone to envy? Because they desire the money, possessions, or power of another person. Or because they desire the relationships or reputation of another person. Or because they desire the spiritual gifts or fruitfulness of another person. So like it can even be spiritual at that level, right? Oh, well, I don't, I don't need to be wealthy. I don't need, I don't need to desire or, or I don't want the possessions of my rich friends who may have better jobs and make more money. I don't want that. I'm not like that. But yet we'll be envious towards our brother and sister in Christ who've had a really good month in ministry where they've been seeing souls saved, where, where everyone else is rejoicing in your heart. You have contempt for them because you don't have the thing that you want. And it keeps you from lifting them up and rejoicing with them when they're rejoicing because you envy what they have, because you wish you were that fruitful. Well, listen, I would bet that as long as you're envious of things that, that God hasn't given you, as long as you're covetous, well, God's probably not going to bless you. You're, it's you that are the restricting force. Does that make sense? Envy reveals what you value the most. If money, possessions, power, or reputation, or, or reputation 
are the object of your desire, then listen to me. Then where is the soul in all that? Where is the, where is the soul in all that? Where is, where is the human soul amidst, amidst your envy? See, you're losing the capacity to consider anything beyond yourself. Mark 8.36 says this, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? See, see what envy does is it causes us to think so deeply about the things that we want that we can no longer see spiritual things. We no longer want or desire the things that God wants, and God wants souls. He wants souls for a kingdom. That's what he wants. And then we, lo- we lose that insight, and now we're seeking things in the temporal world when God has called us to seek things in the eternal world. And that leads us to this next key point. Charity establishes an eternal perspective on people, possessions, and positions. That's what charity does for us. When we love people unconditionally, when we're sacrificial towards others, it creates in us a perspective on people, possessions, and positions that match God's. That's a big deal. Philippians 2, 4 says this, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Fourth, charity vaunteth not itself. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's, it's without boast. Charity is without boast. So what, what does vaunteth not itself mean? To vaunt is to boast or make a vain display of one's worth. It's to boast or, or, or make a vain display of one's worth. Someone that is boastful is always finding a way to bring the conversation back to them or always looking to minimize other people's achievements. Okay, listen to me. We all know people like this, but the truth is we are all that person from time to time. You're talking about, it could be about anything. It could be about anything. You're having a conversation, right? Okay, talking about, talking about maybe degrees, Okay, you went, to, you went to school, you're getting a degree, and someone's like, hey, you know what? My friend just got a bachelor's degree in such and such. And then they find a way to bring it back. You know, do you know I have a master's degree in such and such and such? <laughs> you know the one-upper, the one upper, right? The one-upper? The person who's always one-upping or bring, finding ways to, to navigate the conversation back to them to talk about themselves? Listen, we all do this. We all do this because we're insecure people. And we're obsessed with other people's affirmation. <clears throat> So we we minimize other people's achievements. We can't applaud them the way that we should. Someone that is boastful is prone to serve in ministry, listen, in order to be seen or acknowledged. See, they have wrong motives. Even with good things. You can spoil a good thing with the wrong motive. A boasting person's love, listen, will always be tainted by selfish motives. A boasting person's love will always be tainted by selfish motives. They'll never be, it'll never be pure. And God hates boasting. Disgusts him. Proverbs 25, 14 says, Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. That's good. Like, that's worth studying right there. James 3, 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member. You know, your tongue is pretty small, Right? But man, it does a lot of work bringing attention to itself, to who you are. It boasteth a great thing. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. So what this passage, passage is saying is that your tongue, when it boasts, it's like a little fire that when it gets kindled, produces a massive flame that can destroy everything around it. Your boast, boasting is dangerous. James 4.16, but now ye rejoice in your boastings. This is a, a, a rebuke. You rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. 
Now, I don't know if you guys remember this, but boasting was the great weakness of Samson. You thought, you thought it was Delilah. You, th- you thought it was his libido that got him in trouble. But it was his boasting that paved the way for envy and covetousness and lust. Boastfulness killed King Herod in Acts chapter 12. See, boasting, listen, boasting is a person's sad attempt to convince other people of your worth. It's a, it's a dismal attempt to deal with our frailty and insecurities. Because we think that if we talk about ourselves enough, everyone will agree that we're pretty awesome. And then I can, I can go to bed at night, I can lay my head down, and I can have peace because people think I'm awesome. I can look at the mirror in the mirror and not hate myself because other people agree that I'm pretty cool. And it's, and it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that we need that, in fact. It's, it's kind of sad to me that the creator of the universe can hold you in such esteem that he laid down his, he laid down his very life for you. With your name and your face in his imaginary. And yet you still need affirmation from frail people around you. See, the worst part of speaking highly of yourself is that it obscures the glory and praise that only God deserves. Key point is this. Charity or true love is displayed in humble and consistent servitude. Christ was a servant, you should be a servant. You don't need to boast. You don't need to prove yourself. You just need to serve. And Jesus, of course, personifies this best. Philippians chapter 2, this is rivals to be probably my favorite, my favorite uh, chapter in all of Scripture. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus <clears throat> who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." True love is manifest in lowliness, not arrogance or flamboyant displays. We should not boast. And this is an area we all struggle with. Some of us, some of us are, are braggadocious people by nature. And you know the thing is, sadly, <clears throat> I have met, uh, I've met many pastors who are very prone they, they, feign, they feign true humility, but they sure are quick to talk about their ministry and what God's doing through them. Man, I wonder how often, I want, I, this is just a, a thought. <clears throat> I wonder how often we cut God's work in our life short, the fruitfulness in our life short, because when God uses us, rather than giving him the glory, we brag about what God's doing in our lives. I mean, we have a way of spinning it. We, we spin it our direction instead of spinning it upward. And I wonder if God's like, man, that was fun for a minute, but clearly you haven't learned what I need you to learn. And so, and so let's, let's go ahead and make you work through some wilderness times. You know, I wonder. How do we, how do we deal with this tendency? Check this out. Psalm 34, 2. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Key point, charity charity defers glory to God and grants honor to others. That's what charity does. 
It's not boastful. It's not boastful. It defers glory to God and grants honor to others. That's what it does. Fix your boasting problem by fixing your boast on God. That'll fix that real quick. It'll, it'll put things in order real quick. Okay, the fifth and last thing. Are we ready? You staying with me? Charity is not puffed up. Charity is not puffed up. In other words, charity is without arrogance. What does puffed up mean? To be puffed up is to be proud. It's to be proud. Love is not puffed up or big-headed is another way of saying that. I mean, some of y'all have a big, a big dome because of genetics. But others of you, you have, a, you have a spiritually big head because you, um, you constantly need others to stroke your ego. And your relationships, they revolve around you. The, the phrase puffed up is found seven times in the New Testament. Okay, It's found seven times in the New Testament. Six of those seven times in 1 Corinthians. I thought that was pretty interesting. It addresses this issue quite a bit. Now let's survey some of those verses real quick, real quick uh, to get us some insight. 1 Corinthians 4, 6. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sake. In other words, we've been an example. That ye might learn in us to not think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. So in other words, puffed up, a puffed up mind sets us at odds with the brethren. When we're puffed up, we're at odds with one another. It postures you towards division, not unity. When we're puffed up, when, our, when we get big-headed, when we think ourselves better than we are, it puts us in a posture of division, not unity. 1 Corinthians 4.18 says, Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly <coughs> if the Lord will and will know. Listen, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in, in, in power. So what he's saying is I'm going to come check things out. I'm going to see for myself. And I'm going to find out who's full of hot air. Who has empty words. Who's making vain declarations with no power. I mean, listen, a lot of us are prone to that type of behavior. We talk a good talk. We want everyone to see us as religious. We want everyone to see us as wise. But a lot of it is hot air. It's hot air. 1 Corinthians 5.2, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that, that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but there's a real problem with sin in the church in Corinth, and people didn't want to deal with it. People didn't know what to do with it, and they kind of just dismissed it. And so we can be puffed up if we don't deal with sin around us. It's pride and fear that would cause us to do that. 1 Corinthians 8.1, now is touching things offered unto idols. We know that we all have knowledge. And knowledge, what? Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. People that want to become intellectual in God's work. Who doesn't, who doesn't want to become intellectual in God's work? I mean, I think every one of us that would call ourselves a Christian want to grow, want, wants to grow deeper in our knowledge of the Bible, right? But there are some of us that would choose to be intellectual in God's word rather than learn charity. And charity builds others up. So listen to me. God gives us knowledge so that we can pass it on. In fact, that's how we grow. You want to know how to grow? Gain the knowledge and pass it on. That's how you grow. You don't grow from just gaining the knowledge. That's not growth. Okay? You grow from gaining the knowledge and passing it along to others in servanthood. That's how you grow. Not through the knowledge itself, but through charitable dissemination. So here's our next key point. Arrogance, which begins with a know-it-all spirit. Some of you are know-it-alls. Dudes especially. Some of you dudes, 
Dudes are prone to this. Huh? Yeah? Don't pretend. Give me an amen. Amen. (laughs) Arrogance, listen, will set you at odds with the brethren and make it impossible for you to grow grow close to other people. Your arrogance will keep people at arm's length. You want to know why your relationships aren't deep, right? People want to love you from a distance and not grow close to you. Maybe it's your arrogance that's getting in the way. Because arrogance harms every relationship. And it will impede ministry as well. Well, why didn't I get invited to be a part of that ministry endeavor? Well, maybe people thought your arrogance might get in the way. People people have a hard time doing ministry with someone with a big giant head that fills the room. Your Your head alone is getting in the way. It's obscuring the work of the ministry. And so maybe that's why you didn't get invited. But here's the deal. There's a lot of us who who have kind of an arrogant attitude and we think we know a thing or two and it prevents us from growing close to people and we ask ourselves, why? Why are our relationships are shallow? And it's because we are proud. We're proud people. And why, why does God hate pride so much? You know, he's got a lot to say about this in the Bible. Here's a few. Here's a few. Psalm 12.3, the Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Psalm 138.6, though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. I mean, it can get in, our way, in, way, in the way of our relationship with God. God says he knows the proud afar off. He knows them, but it's like they're way over there. Because not even God wants to get close to somebody who thinks they're better than him. (laughs) Not even God wants that kind of relationship. He wants you to get that right. Because your relationship with God is contingent on whether or not you're willing to follow and love him. Proverbs 16.5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. A lot there. So we should not be proud. So how do we, how do we prevent from growing proud? First, you have to ask yourself, are your relationships contingent on whether or not you feel respected? I mean, this is important to marriage relationships too. Okay, how do I deal with pride? Okay, ask yourself for a second. Ask yourself. Are my relationships contingent on whether or not I feel respected in that relationship? Because if you insist on being respected, then that is a perspective that is prone to pride. This is the type of person that God resists. So what do we do about it? What do we do about it? What do we do? What do we do? First Peter 5.5, 5, likewise. Ye younger... Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So here's the point. Charity produces humility and meekness, not obstinance and force. Charity, charity, love produces humility and meekness, not obstinance and force. So we need to grow in meekness and humility through submission. The answer is submission. Submitting to God, submitting to one another in love. In love. Learning to submit to each other will break the cycle of pride and arrogance in your life. Because when you serve someone else, you are saying, you are reinforcing the concept that they are better than you. And they don't even have to know as much as you do. They don't have to be as smart. They don't have to be as deep, philosophical. Maybe they don't know how to divide the Bible as well as you do. But you have the ability to submit yourself to them and break the cycle of arrogance and pride in your life. All right, so there's more more to cover here. Is this too slow? Are we going too slow? We're slowing down here. That's just one verse we got through today. But here's what we got to get to. So here's the deal. 
We've got all these wonderful gifts in this room. I mean, if, if you're a believer, if you know Jesus Christ, you are gifted to do something mighty for, for his namesake. But if we don't grow in our charity, if we don't grow in love, we will get in the way of the work. And you will, you will cause this ministry to not be everything that it should be. The other thing is this. Some of us have deficits in our love relationships, in, in, in the relationships in this ministry. And, and so even within our Bible studies, there are things that aren't right, tensions that exist. And I would bet that there are some of us that are struggling with some of these things that we talked about today. And so when you assess, you, you look at the love that you give out and, and, and maybe the way in which you receive love, why don't you look at that and consider, is there something that's off? Is there something that I can work on here? And so in our invitation today, this is an opportunity for you to deal with deficits in your love. The other thing, the other thing is this. Some of you are, and let's just be honest, that some of you have relationships in your life that are, are very toxic, especially dating relationships. So you're, you're dating someone that you, have, you, you might end up marrying this person, but this person is not charitable in the ways that we talked about today. They're not long-suffering towards you. They're not kind. They're boastful. They're proud. This is not the type of person that you want to marry. So take this as a warning that it's time for you to get out of the relationship. Now, when you get out of the relationship, maybe that person can begin to see the things that are a problem in their life, and maybe they can get with God for a while. They need to go get with God. And you can separate yourself and trust that God's going to give you everything you need. And if that person doesn't get it right, well, then that's not the person for you. But some of us need to be very careful about the relationships that we're in because even, you know, our friendships or our dating relationships can be very, very dangerous if, if, if we engage them with people who don't actually love us. But to be honest with you, let's get back to the real issue. Maybe, maybe the problem is you. Maybe the problem is you. Maybe you're the toxic one in the relationship. Now, here's the very last thing as I invite the worship team uh, to come up in just a second, just a second. There are some of you in this room who've never known true love. And we're talking about charity, and we're talking about it as though that this is like attainable. Spiritually speaking, this is attainable for you. You could become a charitable person, but listen to me. You, you actually can't unless you first know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Until, until you lay your life down before him and say, God, I need forgiveness for the sin. I know that it's my sin, my sin that caused you to have to come here and give up your life. I know it's my wickedness that put you on that cross. I know it's my failure, my pride, my arrogance, my lying tongue that caused you to give your life up for me. And I acknowledge that, and I say, I, I need what you have to offer. I need your grace, and I need your forgiveness. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you be my savior? Would, would, you, would you be gracious enough towards me to let me receive the love that you've extended? And you take hold in faith. You take hold in faith, believing, believing that Jesus Christ died for you, that he rose again on the third day for you. Take hold on that truth and be set free. Be set free today. Embrace what God's done for you. And then become the charitable person that he's called you to be. Does this make sense to everybody? You can't activate something you don't have. So let's lay hold on Christ today. And if you know you need Jesus as your Savior, there are going to be leaders up here who are willing to meet with you and talk about whatever need it is that you face but let's pray, let's invite the worship team up, let's close this way, let's call on the Lord to help us. Dear Lord, thank you for this time in your word, thank you for how explicit you are about the issue of love. And 1 Corinthians 13, you know, even the lost, turn to 1 Corinthians 13, even the lost world, the non-believers say that this is, 
the, the greatest poetic declaration of love in all of literature throughout all of Western civilization. Like, th- this, this passage is even lifted up as being impeccable by people who don't even believe in you. God, let your truth reign today. Lord, let your spirit speak to us right where we're at. If there, is, if there is any love lacking in our lives, whether it be because we don't know you as Savior or because we just simply, in our, in our pride and arrogance, have refused love, God, would you help us today? Would you help us to get it right? We need you. You are the source of all love. We pray for your help. In Christ's name, amen. Let's worship the Lord. If you've got something to deal with, come forward. today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.